Hello, and welcome back to another interview on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your interviewer and host each week. You may recognize me also as the host and interviewer of Franklin Covey's other podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week I am privileged to interview business titans, best-selling authors, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, uh, literary giants, sometimes celebrities, and after four and a half years of hosting that podcast and literally millions and millions of listens and views, what we realized is, is that the most listened to, liked, reviewed episodes weren't always the Hollywood celebrity or the number one best-selling author, although in some cases they were. They were often interviews with people like you and I, people that had remarkable but relatable career journeys. And because of that, we decided to spin off a new podcast now in its second year called C-Suite Conversations, where each week I have the privilege of interviewing people from across the C-Suite talking about their own career journeys, the mistakes, the good decisions they made, when they might have pivoted, was their career a linear path or more serendipitous? And we talk also about the aspects of their companies in case you might be interested in joining their organizations. And today we have Mike Finlon, who's joining us just north of the city. You can see the beautiful background from his office in Manhattan. He is the Chief Future of Work Officer at PWC. He also is a psychologist by academic training. He's an avid runner, uh, and we'll learn a lot more about his own life professionally and personally today. Mike, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you. I was complimenting you on your great background. It's nice not to see a virtual background for a change. Tell us about where you're sitting strategically today. Well, I'm uh, in our New York City office, which is at the corner of 42nd Street and Madison Avenue. And yes, that's not a digital representation behind me. That's the actual Chrysler building. You couldn't, uh, couldn't afford a de decent uh, dress in New York City, so you got stuck at 42nd and Madison. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's an amazing location, by the way. Hey, Mike, I appreciate your time today. Let's, uh, let's rewind a little bit. Before we get into life at PwC and what is the future of work, because you obviously have some expertise around that, would you rewind to college, talk a bit about your journey as a, uh, a psychologist, and you also have a, a, an academic background in your portfolio. Talk about the path that led you now to uh, chief of Future Work Officer at PwC. Uh, sure, Scott, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And it, as you say, I'll rewind the tape a bit. Um, you know, early in my life, certainly when I was a, a college student, I had no interest at all in uh, business. Um, I wasn't interested in pursuing a career in business. If anything, I had an antipathy towards it. Um, but what I was interested in doing and I was motivated to do is to try and make a difference. And uh, early on, uh, I was interested in public policy and politics, but also in psychology, uh, because I felt that was a path to making a very tangible and concrete difference in, um, in the lives of other people. And as a student, I tried to do as much volunteer work as I could uh, to get as much experience, to learn about uh, what kinds of things energized me, what, what I thought I could, you know, what kinds of skills I could develop. That included, a, you know, kind of a wide range of experiences. Uh, I remember as a volunteer, and I, and I had to work my way through college, so I had limits on my time, but I, this was something I really prioritized. So, for example, 
working with um, men who had been arrested for uh, domestic violence and I was a facilitator. Now there was a professional facilitator and I was helping that individual lead uh, counseling groups after, uh, after some training, uh, working at a, a suicide hotline, working in meal programs. This was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, so meal programs for individuals and families uh, that that needed help every month um, in terms of their own uh, their own budgets and and just literally having enough food to put on on the table. Uh, these early experiences were really important, I think, and um, and foundational, both in you know, fueling my desire to again make a difference, to live with a sense of purpose. And also to to connect with people on an individual basis. Uh, so that ultimately led me to pursue psychology as a career, as you mentioned. Um, I ultimately earned a uh, my my PhD at Columbia University, uh, and along the way, uh, did clinical training, worked as a therapist actually here in New York City and in, in the Bronx and in Brooklyn in um, crime victim centers. Um, working in the area of post-traumatic stress. But at the same time, I also had opportunities for organizational leadership. And I was finding that those opportunities, those roles uh, ultimately were more, even more energizing to me in the sense that I could also make a difference at, at scale. So it was early on a, a combination of a desire to live with, with purpose uh, and to make a difference in the lives of others. And then learning, ultimately, I think so important for all of us, what's the kind of work that really energizes and, and following that path. Mike, talk about, thank you, talk about your career inside of PwC. Not everyone may know that as a household name for those, of course, on the finance, accounting, fiduciary side, Mike. Talk a little bit about your journey inside PwC and a little bit about that firm. Well, PwC is a global network of firms. We operate in approximately 156 countries. We have approximately 315,000 people and we're a multidisciplinary, quote unquote, professional services firm. So what does that mean? It means we do strategy through execution consulting, uh, technology consulting, uh, deals, uh, transformation, working with our clients and transforming from a strategic and operational perspective. In addition, of course, as you mentioned, uh, we audit financial statements. A, uh, that's a traditional, we're 170 years old and uh, accounting is um, represents our roots. And we also provide tax services, tax compliance and tax consulting. So it's a breadth of services. And it's one of the things that makes, I think, this place so special. Uh, the diversity of professionals, the ability to work with a wide array of capabilities in solving some of the most complex challenges for our clients. Mike, talk about your own journey inside the firm because you didn't vault in to that office with that view as the chief future of work officer. Talk about your professional journey inside PwC. Well, you know, it, Scott, it really started. I was, um, I had started my career in, um, in consulting and then I was teaching at Columbia Business School, teaching in the areas of strategy, leadership, change. Uh, as a psychologist, very interested in the area of emotional intelligence and, and the role it plays in teams and in business. And I was approached somewhat out of the blue 
by a uh, by a colleague uh, at a Wall Street firm who um, who had been approached by a headhunter, connected me with uh, a role they were they were doing a search for, and that led to a number of discussions with the leadership at the time uh, around people strategy, people experience being so central uh, to the culture of PwC. And uh, I decided ultimately to make to make a move from from Columbia to PwC, uh, with the hope of contributing uh, to our our people strategy. How many years in the firm, Mike? I joined PwC in two thousand and five, so I've been here for some time. And one of the beauties of being in a large firm is there are many many opportunities to grow, uh, to uh, take on new roles. Roles that I would have never imagined, actually. Um, uh, so, while I've been here since 2005, I have had many different types of leadership roles across our firm, and um, and that's been one of the things I think being constantly stretched, having opportunities to learn, to grow, that that's been very important to me. Mike, in a moment, I do want to talk about your uh, background as a psychologist and what are some of the psychological factors leaders might want to be steeped in or developed in, but let's talk about your current title, Chief Future of Work Officer. That means you're a little bit of a Nostradamus in terms of being a futurist, understanding uh, maybe where the puck is going and how to make sure your firm and your clients are there positioned well. Talk about the scope of what it means to be the Chief Future of Work Officer at a global firm that I guess are keeping your pulses on what's next everywhere. What is a trend? What is a fad? What is a principle? Talk about what comes under your purview as the chief future of work officer. Yeah, Scott, well, maybe just starting with the simple observation that our world is changing, our society is changing, and at a pace, uh, at an accelerated pace that um, really requires all of us, in a sense, to be futurists, requires all of us to understand the environment we're in, uh, how the world's changing and how we need to adapt, both personally in terms of leadership, leadership styles, but then of course, what it means for, for business, uh, for our economy. So we start with an outside in perspective and uh, you know that includes understanding uh, macroeconomic risks and, and trends. And obviously we're here we are uh, with many talking about the potential for a global recession, a global downturn in the economy. We have geopolitical risk. Um, obviously, the war in, in Ukraine immediately comes to mind, but larger geopolitical trends, demographic shifts. Um, you know, some, some economists talk about the potential demographic time bomb, if you will, in the West um, and in, in other countries as well. Uh, with a shrinking workforce, an aging workforce. So the point is when you look at these sorts of trends, it's not just a matter of understanding tomorrow, but what are the tectonic shifts, uh, climate change, and the transition to a sustainable economy? Um, what are the kinds of trends then that have so much impact both for, for strategy, for, for vision, for purpose, um, in addition to our culture? You know, Mike, in many ways, your career title, your job title is a leadership competency. I think it was Jack Welch, who I met a couple of times in my career here at Franklin Covey, the iconic CEO of GE who's passed. He talked about one of his top four or five competencies he hired for was people who could, quote, look around corners. 
Uh, Rita McGrath, the famous Columbia professor, wrote a book called Seeing Around Quarters. I mean, this isn't just a trend. This is a multi-decade competency. As you're speaking today to literally millions of C-suite leaders, people on the rise, perhaps into the C-suite, what are some of the things you think people should be looking for? The global landscape, macro, micro, I mean, you know, it could be a smaller company, a large company. What are some of the things you think people should have their pulse on as they're thinking about retention, recruitment, new client, business development, unexpected pandemics and conflict? Maybe keep it practical. What are the three yeah. or four things you think all of us should be thinking and watching for? Well, it's fun fun to hear you mention Rita, by the way, an old friend from, from Columbia. Uh, maybe a couple themes, uh, Scott, that I would highlight. One is anchoring in clear purpose. And today, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an old debate in business schools. Uh, uh, it, it, what is the purpose? Is it simply to make money? Is it simply for to to grow profitably, which of course is never easy in any industry or for any leadership team to, to chart that course of success. But today, here we find ourselves uh, with a focus on purpose that's much broader. And uh, that reflects, I think, a, a deeper sense of responsibility towards society and being a participant in society. So I think anchoring in purpose, what does that mean practically? Well, one example, ensuring that we're building inclusive cultures. One of the things at, at PwC that we're, we're very proud of is our chairman, Tim Ryan, is the founding sponsor with a number of other business leaders of CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion. It's the largest coalition of uh, business leaders, a business-led coalition focused on DEI uh, today. And it's an example of what I'm talking about. So it's not, under, it's not framing DEI as a competitive issue, but as a societal imperative, uh, giving greater and greater access to the benefits of our economy to more and more people and to understanding how we, what we can do as leaders in our teams and in our organizations to both increase representation, increase sense of belonging, create environments where everyone has a voice and everyone can contribute to the fullest, to their fullest. So I think that's an example of an imperative today in business, uh, building inclusive cultures and, and being an advocate for, uh, for DEI. Mike, take it a little further. Let's talk also real pragmatically. Um, as you think about the future of work, when I hear that, I think, okay, so how much will be hybrid? How much will be virtual? How much will be in person? Will people have portfolio careers? Is the side hustle becoming the main hustle? Where people yeah. have loyalty to organizations like they used to? You know, when you and I originally built our careers, you know, if someone came to you 10 years ago with six or eight jobs, you were like, gosh, they're nuclear. I won't touch them because they won't stay here. Now, if someone has 15 years in one company, they're a bit of a pariah. It's like, why did you stay so long, you know? Will you be agile and nimble? What do you think the future of work looks like pragmatically for those of us that are maybe just entering the workforce or a mid-career? I know you can't, you don't have your crystal ball, but you're as close to the pulse as anyone. Give us a sense for that. Yeah, I, I think people are looking for um, more diverse kinds of experiences, opportunities to build a portfolio of experience, partly because we're in a world where there's a real 
shelf life, a consciousness of shelf life of, of both skills um, and, and relevancy. So the, you know, in business schools, we talk a lot about uh, innovation and um, the need for organizations to continuously both drive sustaining innovation, but then also more fundamental, even disruptive innovation. And you could take the same thing for our own lives and careers. And we see this, you know, we recruit in the US, for example, we'll recruit students from over 600 campuses just, just in the US. And we do absolutely see an interest and a recognition of the importance of building a portfolio of experiences. Now, that's one of the advantages, I think, of being in a larger organization is you can gain access uh, to that kind of marketplace. We actually call it a, a talent marketplace. And um, one of the things we're investing in is tech enabling the ability of our people uh, to, to access diverse work experiences. It's part of a larger people strategy we call MyPlus that's anchored in uh, greater choice, greater flexibility in terms of career paths uh, and other dimensions like, like well-being and, and leadership development. Mike, I ask this question of a lot of our guests, not because I can't think of more questions, but because I think the answers are always so insightful. Uh, what would you tell someone like me that has three young boys, my sons with my wife, Stephanie, our sons are eight, 10, and 12. And so they're anywhere between, you know, 10 and 15 years entering the workforce after college or whatever it is they choose to do. What would you say are the key skills, industry agnostic, what are the key skills these boys need to learn to have a thriving career to provide for themselves and find meaning 15 years from now as they enter the workforce? Yeah, Scott, it's such a great question. I'm a parent as well. We have four kids. <clears throat> it's something I think about a lot. And we, we talk about this a lot inside of our firm as well. Um, you know, as parents, sometimes we may say, well, everyone has to learn how to code, right? In a digital economy, in, a in an economy in which so many companies today think of themselves, if not as in a tech sector or tech companies, they, you know, technology pervades everything. So, so certainly some level of digital literacy is important, but I worry that that can eclipse uh, the underlying human skills, uh, the power skills as they're often referred to. So think of emotional intelligence. So skills related to self-awareness, knowing what my strengths are, how to play to them, how to recognize and manage my emotions, um, the ability to demonstrate grit and, and persistence uh, to deal with setbacks, uh, the ability to read others' emotions and to build relationships, including relationships across differences and valuing that. So a sense of curiosity about others' life experience. Uh, those are some of the uh, power skills, I'll call them, that uh, certainly we believe are only growing in importance while at the same time, uh, our digital economy and technology becomes more and more prominent. Mike, uh, let's reiterate that. I think you said something really profound there because there's this great debate that has been for decades about hard skills and soft skills and right. how this idea of soft skills has become, it needs to be elevated, that there's no such thing as soft skills. You actually have just renamed or at least codified this idea that soft skills are really power skills. 
Well, I've heard others use that phrase as well. I don't think it's unique to me. I think it's an accurate description though of those skill sets. And uh, you know what, what all of us want, certainly for our kids and ourselves, our colleagues, is the ability to, to fulfill our potential. And we know in life, that's not simply a matter of technical skills, they matter. And technical skills are something that we're gonna be in a position, especially now, where we're gonna have to continuously reinvent and be invested in, in that kind of growth mindset. We're never really done sharpening those skills. But we also know that skills like emotional intelligence skills, um, uh, self-awareness, uh, the ability to work and collaborate in teams and groups with people who are different from yourself and to value that, those are essential today in the workplace. And we see them every single day. Everything we do in our firm, we do in a team. And uh, so, so to be, the ability to, to succeed, to progress in your career really hinges on your ability to work effectively with, with others. Mike, you also said something in there that I wanna expand on. Like you, I am very passionate about the power of self-awareness, right? No, knowing what it's like to work with you, knowing what it's like to be in a meeting with you or work a trade show booth with you for three days. I think it's probably the biggest contributor to people's success and to their demise in organizations. But the flip side of that is something you said that I've actually not heard phrased the way you did, and that's to read the emotions of others. I think it's a power skill especially in a virtual environment or a hybrid environment yeah. where you don't know what some one person's body language may mean to a difference. Talk about and expand on the value of knowing how to read someone else's emotions. Well, you know, uh, Scott, perhaps the most important attribute of any relationship is trust. And, you know, evolutionary psychologists tell us and biologists tell us it may have been the very first thing we acquired was this ability to almost instantaneously assess, can I trust you? And uh, part of that hinges on an ability to read emotion. Yeah. If that seems abstract, just think of a time, and I'll ask listeners to do this, think of a time when you've been with someone who is terrible at it, who completely misread emotion, uh, or was oblivious to it in a group. And we know that groups, teams, just like individuals, can carry emotion. And that kind of uh, energy, whether it's positive or negative, has a tremendous impact. And there's lots of research that, that, that uh, demonstrates this, has a tremendous impact on an ability of a team to perform, to fulfill its potential, to access the skills of each member, and to work cohesively. You know, I want to belabor this point because I think it's at risk. Uh, I mentioned off air that I had the privilege of being on Franklin Covey's executive team for a decade, was the chief marketing officer amongst many other roles. And I would argue that at the time, with our chairperson, the executive team was this company's perhaps most valuable asset. Beyond our broader relationships and our IP, it was the way the top eight officers worked with the CEO. I don't mean to elevate us above everybody else, but our chairman's carefully curated executive team, in my arrogant opinion, was this company's most valuable asset. It's the way we forgave each other. We trusted each other. We called each other out. We spoke to each other and disagreed with each other. And there were some of us that were hyper-attuned to somebody's uh, 
body language, others that weren't. Are, are you not worried that that killer asset is being lost in a more hybrid, virtual, geographically displaced environment? Because you know, people would know when Scott got up out of the chair and started walking around the room, I wasn't nervous, I was thinking. I was thinking of perhaps something genius or maybe something not genius. And when the CEO went to the restroom, it meant he was pissed off and he wanted to process something, right? And when somebody else, but it was a powerful family dynamic that helped this company grow substantially. Are you not concerned that a lot of that's being jeopardized with the value that also comes from a more diverse geographic workforce? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. Uh, I would say it's not all or nothing. And it's a matter of being deliberate. When is it most important and valuable for us to be together, to be in the same room? It goes to the imperative of, of building trust, as we were just talking about. You know, it's interesting. In my own career, I've never actually had a team uh, where we were all based in the same place. Huh. Uh, we're a very geographically dispersed firm. So I've had team members both all over the world, but also all over the United States. So it, and this is long before the pandemic. So we had to get very good, become very good at understanding when was it, how often did we need to come together? Um, when was it important? But also learning how to work virtually. And technology is enabling new ways of working, new ways of building relationships. It doesn't mean it replaces, though, the imperative of that time together. Uh, so it's not either or, and I, and I think that's an important point. It's, this is also a time, I guess the last thing I'd add, this is also an important time for all of us to be learning um, how to optimize when we're working with colleagues who are virtual, uh, when we're working in a hybrid environment, to use data to rapidly learn and to, to, to use that as a team as well, to be, to be very deliberate, to self-assess and, and to course correct when we need it. Mike, you might answer this next question different than how I'm gonna ask it, but as a psychologist, a trained psychologist, what do you think are the most important uh, psychological aspects that leaders need to be aware of? Is it introversion, extroversion, is it personality traits? Is it uh, empathy? Is it, you know, the stuff from Gallup around your strengths or Patrick Lencioni around your behaviors? These are all friends of ours and I admire their work. Um, as you're onboarding new leaders, what do you think they need to be attuned to and, like you just said, constantly learning to make sure they're great leaders for their team members and they're retaining talent for T T PwC? Yeah, Scott, you know, I think the task is not for all of us to be psychologists, um, but to rather understand some fundamental truths, uh, both about uh, ourselves, uh, the people we work with, but then also what does it mean to be a leader? And one of those truths is we're all different. Uh, people are different. So that means really listening, making it to be very, very deliberate, self-aware, uh, in, in terms of understanding the people you work with, what drives them, what matters to them, and then demonstrating you care. So it's a combination of curiosity, listening, understanding, and then my role as a leader, how can I bring together a group of people with different strengths and skills, build trust, and enable every single person to contribute to their fullest? 
to have that powerful sense of belonging, to have a voice. And part of that is harmony in the sense of different perspectives, but coming together to achieve a common goal. So I don't think it's a matter of, uh, the, you know, it, it, the, the agenda here is that all of us have to go out and get doctorates in, in psychology or some version of that, but rather really focusing on understanding the people we work with, demonstrating we care, and, uh, and then doing everything we can to help people fulfill their potential. Let's finish this discussion. I want you to think about the moments of truth that you've faced in your career. And if you had to prioritize them, what's the biggest challenge or clarity or moment of truth you faced that fundamentally changed the way you lead? Perhaps it was a spouse or a parent or as a leader in your career. Think, maybe it was a, maybe it was a trauma, maybe it was a, uh, a demotion, or it was something you came in contact with that said, wow, I'm learning from this substantially and now I will be a different leader as a result. Well, you know, Scott, it's a great question, I think, for all of us to, to consider. And one aspect of business is pressure, pressure to achieve goals, pressure to deliver for your clients, uh, pressure to deliver for your team. Um, so many years ago, I was in an elevator and uh, we were up at the top floor of a tall, tall building. And I got on the elevator with two executive assistants and they were speaking to each other. And we were the only people in the elevator. I couldn't help but over, overhear them. And uh, they were very sad because an executive had literally, in their words, had just dropped dead. This was someone who apparently was a relatively young man. Uh, he had a family, young kids. And they went on to say how they had always been worried about him. He seemed to be working around the clock uh, working nonstop. Uh, he seemed to be consumed with his work and all the stress and, uh, and then this, this tragic outcome. So this is, this is over two decades ago that, that, that conversation took place. And I got out of the elevator and, um, a few weeks later, I was in the same city I was traveling. Uh, and I had been thinking a lot about that discussion. We, my wife and I didn't have any kids at the time, but we were expecting our first. And uh, we were getting close and close to the, closer and closer to the due date when I'm in my hotel room and my mother-in-law's on the other, on the other end of the, of the phone calling me saying that my wife Dana was going into, into labor. Now I'm thousands of miles away. I'm in a hotel room and it's late at night. There's no, absolutely no way I could get home. So naturally I'm up all night. Um, my wife gets to the hospital. Uh, fortunately it was um, premature. It was not actual labor. Uh, so it was a false alarm, but I got on the plane, obviously the very next moment uh, I could early that morning. And I remember very vividly two things. Um, and this goes to where I started around the pressure and how we manage pressure uh, for ourselves and with, with our, our teams. Um, one person I worked with was emphatic, absolutely supportive because I, I made a decision at that point, I wasn't gonna be traveling again on the road until our, 
our, our uh, child was born. But another person I worked with at the time who was consumed with this kind of pressure I'm talking about really wanted me to get back out there because we were trying to achieve an important, um, an important goal uh, that at least he thought we couldn't do, do virtually. So my point is this, that was an, an experience I used and I still remember the conversation in the elevator. I remember the, the feeling of being stuck in a hotel room, um, fearful that I'm gonna miss one of the most important experiences in life. Um, knowing that I had to manage my own boundaries, uh, be clear on what my priorities were, and to do that as a leader for the people I worked with as others. That organizations are not machines, they're human ecosystems, and we're working with each other, uh, bringing our whole selves to work, our whole lives, and, and that means creating an environment where people can be at their best, and, um, and live their full life as well in an environment that respects that, supports it, values it. So that was an experience early on that I've tried to carry with me uh, in terms of my own values, my own leadership, and the, the culture that uh, I'm committed to. As you were telling the story, Mike, I could envision you standing on one side of the elevator with the two, uh, I don't know if they were ladies or men, talking about the person that died uh, I can appreciate the gravity of that because our, you know, our, our careers are not our lives. Our careers are our work, right? And we've got to be sure to balance those two because to quote many, many, many people, no one on their death, deathbed said they'd wish they spent more time at the office. So it's a struggle for all of us, tense and intense pressure at work. Mike Finlon, you are the Chief Future Work Officer at PwC, Waterhouse Cooper. thank you for your time today. I appreciate you investing in all of us. Some great reminders around what the future of our careers look like, how to build organizations that are diverse and inclusive. And it was interesting to hear you also talk about how you've never actually been in a team where everybody was in the same office. I spent a decade where everybody worked like feet from each other. So I look forward <laughs> to that same opportunity as well. Thanks for your time today. You're a class act, sir. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.